Mm-hmm. That seems right. That's how it feels. It feels uh, 2014 forever, probably. Maybe. Other than, like, the deep and threatening existential dread of the times. Yeah. How yeah. old was I in 2014? I don't know. I was 23. I was not that age. How old were you? Not 23. Why are you so <laughs> silly about your age? I was 27 in 2014. What were you doing? Uh, working at the University of Missouri Library, Ellis Library, as a patron specialist. I met a lot of cool people, and I was beginning to rediscover romance. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was I my... Picked, I picked a good year to question you about then for the podcast. You sure did. It's also drinking heavily in the afternoons. So after we got off work, we went to this place called ITAP, which is the International Tap House. It's big in central Missouri. Yeah, and we get kind of drunk. In the afternoons? What time is the afternoons? What time would you get off 4.30 is when we'd knock off. That's nice. Yeah, it was. We'd get drunk at happy hour and then go home. Nice. Yeah, when I worked at a university, it was whenever we got off, we would go to happy hours also. And then yeah. I'd be home drunk by 8 p.m. Yeah, make some refried beans. How to get it right <laughs> where we started from. Working nine to five. Uh, anyway, you ready to get this started? Yeah. Coming to you live from beautiful Chicago, Illinois, it's Woman! Was that applause? Yeah. This week's episode brought to you by Ice Wine. Ice Wine. If it's good enough for your mother, it's good enough for you. <laughs> Ice Wine. As P.D. Pablo used to say, I'm drinking it, but they ain't paying me for it. Ice Wine. Does feel distinctly ladies, mom. It does, but it is so good. It is really good. It's so refreshing. I don't know where you all are, listeners, but it's hot as hell in Chicago. I feel like every time we talk about the weather, it's like either very, very cold or very, very hot. Yes. Or it's normal, but we're just describing it is very, very cold or very, very hot. Why else <laughs> remark on the weather except if it's exceptional? That's true. I mean, weather is always, I guess, exceptional. I guess we're never comfortable. <sighs> Hi, I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. Bodice busters. Mexico. Finding yourself. All-inclusive vacations. Kidnappings. Not really about orchids. <laughs> Caves. <laughs> of all kinds. Mud. Mud baths. Tight, tight, hot pink t-shirts with no bra underneath. Obsidian dark eyes. Or jet dark eyes. But most of all, romance novels. And ourselves. Yeah. This week's episode is Karen Robard's Wild Orchids, plural. Listen to this. Paper. We got that paper. We got that paper back. I chose this book. I bought it at a thrift store in my neighborhood. They had a three for 50 cents deal. That's a good deal. And I chose this one because the main character is from Kansas, just like me. Mm-hmm. But since I picked the book, that means you've got to do the summary. Yay. Dog. So in Karen Robard's Wild Orchids, we meet... Laura Harding, who has spent the last decade of her life caring for her ill mother, who's grown more cantankerous and more mean by the minute. Her mother dies and she feels a real sense of relief and she takes her inheritance and buys her sister out of her mother's house, which is great. And she takes the rest of that money and does an all-inclusive trip to Mexico. Cancun has just become the place to be for rich 
white Western tourists. Can you imagine a time before Cancun <laughs> no. was the place to be? I remember watching as a child MTV Spring Break Cancun yep. and being so disappointed that I wasn't a teenager at that point because Agreed. I was like, there's going to be no better time to be a teenager than in Cancun. Than this moment than at MTV Spring Break Cancun. Yeah. So it was really weird to read a book that like this book was published in 1986 for context. What? Out of Africa won. won the Academy Award that year for Best Picture. We're deeply... Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep. Meryl! Meryl. (laughs) You've made better decisions. So it was really weird to read a book that's entire opener is about how Cancun is like this up and coming resort town that's sort of undiscovered. It's not like Acapulco. It's not like other places in Mexico. Anyway, Laura spelled L-O-R-A, which I find disgusting and terrible. She's also a high school teacher. She teaches English. She's also engaged to a high school math teacher who did not accompany her on this trip. Yeah, and it's never explained. <laughs> At all. She's just excited to go on a vacation by herself, but I assume they both get summers off. Brian didn't want to come with. He had too many uh, math papers to grade, I guess. She's from a small town in Kansas. Mm-hmm. That's important to me. Kansas looms large in this book, frankly. Yeah! So does the Midwest, but Kansas in particular. The first descriptor we get of the hero is that he could have been a linebacker for, for the, the Kansas, Kansas City, City Chiefs. Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> and his shoulders from there on out are referred to as linebacker broad, which is quite a descriptor. Anyway, our heroine is in Cancun. She has decided to go see these Mayan ruins. She's rented a car. She's really coming out of her shell. She's wearing this beautiful linen dress that she never would have worn anyway. And lo and behold, she stalls out her car because she's never driven a stick shift before, which I find strange in 1986 for Kansas. It feels like a Kansas farm girl would have learned how to drive stick before that in 1986. But whatever. She stalls out and this gentleman in a sombrero jumps into her car and a poncho and a poncho shows a serape shows her his pistol which is made of lead not Ah. dicks Ah. I'm winking (laughs) you are and (laughs) kidnaps her he says drive and that's how we shoot off and from there we meet drug runners we meet federales we meet farmers we lose ourselves in the mountains of Nicaragua and end up in a cave and other places hijinks ensue hijinks ensue yes absolutely and I also want to give a key bit of background information about our heroine Laura early on in the text she's engaging with our soon to be hero who could have been a linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs he's also tan very tan he's got a very big mustache She also has an American accent. Tight jeans, white sneakers. And I think about those big chunky sneakers Mm -hmm. from the 80s, Mm -hmm. right? And I think a Hawaiian print shirt that she says screams tourist. Yep. And a very hairy chest. He's like Magnum P.I. She's basically describing. Yeah, Magnum P.I. is exactly what I was picturing the whole time. Tom Selleck, for sure. Most definitely. Yeah. And she's looking at Magnum and she's like, whose name is actually Max. But let's call him Magnum. Yeah. So she's looking at Magnum and she starts thinking about having sex with him and she's alarmed by her own arousedness Mm-hmm. because she has had sex with her fiancé, but mm-hmm. she thinks it's overrated, and she recalls overhearing her female high school students talking about sex like a bunch of Carrie's and Samantha's, mm-hmm. and is like, I always thought it was overrated, but maybe those girls were on to something. Which has to be the saddest bit That's... of character building I've ever encountered in a romance novel. Yeah, let's... 
<laughs> there's so much in this that feels really particularly just like wah, wah oh, yeah. about Laura. In particular, like that's a particular moment that I marked. But there's this other thing that she says in her own mind, the much ballyhooed women's liberation movement. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck are you saying about the ballyhooed liberation or movement of women? You fucking Much ballyhooed. Oh my God. I just like. But also let us not forget that like rather shocking moment when she says she was so relieved when her mother finally died. Yeah. Which is a jarring sentence to read in like a Dave Eggers novel. Like <laughs> let alone Karen Robard's Wild Orchids. I was actually fine with that. I like, was I think it's striking to hear someone talk about being relieved and also happy that their parent has died. I agree. It's jarring, but in like in the way in which this characterization of this novel and like her mother gets into this car accident that kills her father when she's only 17. She like has to then go to night school and her mother refuses to be taken care of by a professional because yeah. a professional isn't family. So like for the first 50 pages as we're getting that flashback of how trapped Laura has been yeah, in yeah, her yeah, life yeah. with her mother. I was like, thank God the witch is dead. I totally identify with this yes. and get it. Yes. But I agree. It is really weird to it be is. like, mom's dead, gonna go to Cancun. Yeah, it's like a weird, it's a weird genre for that to appear oh, in totally. as well. That's the yeah. kind of like existential shock mm-hmm. that is, I think, more uh, at home or cozier in, you know, capital L literature. Sure. Although, you know, romance never shies away from bad mother relationships. In fact, there are a ton of them. Maybe too many, in fact. We have a series of bad or absent mothers in romance, and I think that is often like a place in which like heroines have a trauma. It's Mm. like, I don't understand how to be a woman or like in my body or whatever because I had a bad role model. Yeah. I was watching an interview with Jodie Foster, and someone was talking to her about why she felt it was important for women to create film. You Mm -hmm, know? mm -hmm. I think it was shortly after Matt Damon was like, yeah, let's put people of color and women in front of the camera, but it doesn't really matter who's behind the camera. And someone had like asked Jodie Foster wisely for her perspective on that. I honestly can think of few people who I would consider more qualified to comment on popular culture than Jodie Foster, given her trajectory. And she's also a personal inspiration because she's maintained her accent, just like Sissy Spacek, Mm -hmm. and created a really good career. And I think I sound silly, and people talk to me like I sound silly all the time. And maybe I do. I don't think you sound silly, Morgan. I also don't think that Jodie Foster or Sissy Spacek sound silly. They don't, but people take folks with any kind of twang Mm -hmm. less seriously. That's true. That's 100% true. Anyways, that was a tangent. Um, Jodie Foster, they asked Mm -hmm. Jodie Foster why she thought it was important for women to make movies and she's like, you know, it's like every woman has to be motivated by a rape. That's something that appears throughout film. And Jodie Foster said something brilliant. She was like, I think a normal, healthy relationship between a mother and a daughter is enough of an impetus for someone to become wildly violent and intense. <laughs> it's like, that's super true. Even the best mother-daughter relationships have this level of intensity and tumultuousness that is so deeply shaping in a way that I don't think men will ever be able to comprehend. Because, I mean, men have complicated relationships as well. With their fathers and their mothers. I think there's an entire like Greek tragedy around that. But it's, I, like, but it's also at the same time, it's something that Oedipus. is... 
so easily parsed. Sure. You know, whereas like I think women's motivations for having a difficult relationship with their children or their mothers is a little bit less tangible, like a little bit more ethereal, you know? I think it's because we just haven't spent enough time looking at it. And like we've just Mm -hmm, spent so mm -hmm. much time with like stepmothers being evil and like usurping succubi that we haven't spent enough time with like the real traumatic, tumultuous moments of what it is to be a mother or a daughter with a mother who like maybe wanted more and like that kind of trauma is deep-seated or it's like I wanted something else or I didn't imagine my life would look like this I don't regret having you but I imagine something else or also you know women have an experience different from men and their children because women watch their daughters have more rights and more opportunities with every generation with every generation you watch your child be more capable of doing what you probably couldn't even imagine doing yourself at the time and men haven't had that and that can be complicated in itself and I also think you also I want to go back to your really salient beautifully put simple point of like we haven't looked at women's relationships the same way but I think there is something about what we assume about women to be true that has stunted a lot of the complexity that probably exists in masculine relationships because people are like he has a difficult relationship with his father because his father has a hard time expressing love and women don't have that problem which is silly and untrue but also like that's probably silly and untrue for men as well Mm -hmm. there are probably there's got to be something more to that but it is I think mother-daughter father-son relationships are really great proving ground for the fact of female repression is also repressing men yes I think that's a super good point and like super clear throughout this particular Mm -hmm. book like the way in which emotions are deeply repressed but then also like come out and like these weird sort of like huh I'm feeling this feeling and I don't have words for it. I'm deeply uncomfortable. And like the way in which it maneuvers through itself is really weird. Or towards the end of the book when our heroine realizes that she's in love with Max, Mm -hmm. but then her strategy becomes, I can't tell him I love him. Mm -hmm. I can't show him I love him. Because it will scare him away. I must only have sex with him (laughs) until he loves me back is basically her strategy that works. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. Like I will love his body so hard that it will become a physical yearning that will turn into an emotional yearning. Yeah, that's her exact strategy. Yeah, and she like no bones about it. No. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's so fucked up. up. And they're in the jungle when it happens. In a cave in a life or death situation. It all gets like very primal and very literal. Very weird, very fast. Do you want to dive in there or do you want to like, do you want to back up? Like what should we do? Like we also have like PTSD from Vietnam working Working through this too. The hero, yeah. 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 He's divorced. A combat veteran. Combat veteran. I think it specifically talks that he discusses the fact that he killed innocents. Yes. In in Vietnam. In a like melee massacre type thing. Yes. Actually, let's start there. Which is a clear reference without being a literal reference. Right. They call it in the book V Mai. Yeah. Which is like, okay. But he never tells her this. She gets this through his best friend slash person in his unit who was under him slash person who went to high school with him that is called tuna fish slash token black guy right who at one point is referred to as the great ape which awful like just let's get that out of the way this book is particularly reagan in all the particular ways that are oh, awful. oh we can probably do we- in the grand tradition of chicago improv list <laughs> 10 things that are reagan about this book sweater sets <laughs> off the top of my head sweater sets 
Referring um, to minorities as animals. Referring to minorities as animals. Americans needing to save children from the drug state. Which the is drug his, state in Central America. Yeah, the drug state in Central America, uh, which is the entire profession of our hero. Chunky white sneakers. Americans not knowing any other language. Bathtub shaped like seashells. Oh my God, the colors, the pastel colors of everything, <laughs> including like on her bra. You cannot tell me that Nancy Reagan did not start the pastel trend so that her reds would stand out even more in a crowd. Oh my god, I never thought about that, but I think you're right. Can I confess something? This is Morgan's Confession Corners. I'm so excited. Nancy Reagan is a style icon. I hear that. Woman turned it out. Every day. Yeah. Terrible person. Married to a terrible person, but like, yeah. Before Michelle Obama, she was the Mm. closest we got to Jackie Kennedy since Jackie Kennedy. I mean, who was her competition to be real? Rosalind Carter? Yeah. And I want to clarify, I mean, style wise. Yeah. Because obviously my favorite first lady, pre-Michelle Obama, Lady Bird Johnson. Ah, Lady Bird. The most, remains the most highly educated first lady in the history of the United States. Also, one of the only first ladies to be made to cry in public. Mm-hmm. God. Eartha Kitt, Ugh. Santa Baby, said, why are you inviting me here when uh, black people are being murdered in the street? Yeah. Lady Bird Johnson cried. Get it, Eartha Kitt. Yeah. That's what more people need to do. I agree. Fuck civility. Fuck civility. Isabel and I had brunch earlier. We did. It was great. We had this conversation about activism. And I almost feel like we have reached the point where we've been pushed to a limit where civility is no longer an option. Getting your permit is no longer doing what it needs to do. Like the era of civil disobedience has returned. Yes. And we have to. And like that was one of the things about reading a retrograde book like this, a book of its era so specifically. Like she's a card-carrying Republican is our Laura Harding, English teacher of Kansas. Yeah. And it was like hearing the way in which she was so casually racist Mm -hmm. and the ways in which she was so casually entitled. Like it was actually jarring to read her. Mm -hmm. And it was jarring to read Maxwell and it was jarring to hear these versions of discussions about PTSD and the Vietnam War and the way in which it's not about reclamation or healing. It's more about like repression and getting over. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is much more about repression in order to move on. Yeah. And I also think it's striking how Max is for sure our more politically progressive character. Oh yeah. No holds bar on that one. He speaks Spanish. He's been working for not only the DEA but also criminal elements in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And he clearly cares deeply deeply about all of the people that he works for, which is a crew of many kinds of men. And he repeatedly says he hates Mexico, but he's still conscientious and respectful of the culture of Mexico throughout his interactions with the people there. This is not presented as the most charming characteristic of him in the book. No, not at all. But through my modern, you know, readers' Mm -hmm. eyes, I was like, oh, I guess he's okay. Oh yeah, like that was one of the things that made me actually like him versus like his actual physical menacing of our heroine and the way in which he makes fun of her for being an entitled white lady, I yeah. thought were moments where I'm like, I don't actually hate you, Maxwell Magnum P.I. Yeah. Even though I kind of hate you. Yeah, yeah. I did kind of appreciate how Laura, <laughs> it's interesting because our heroine's journey of self-discovery has clearly started before the hero ever shows up, mm-hmm. which feels also 
really progressive for this mm-hmm. retrograde novel, just by fact of she has decided to visit the ruins on her own rather than going with her tour group. Mm-hmm. It's like a big deal for her. Totally. The fact that she's gone to Mexico without anybody, like seven days after her mother's death. And she is, when she was first kidnapped, she tries really hard to escape many ways. Yeah. Very creatively. She's taken a class about self-protection and violence and she yeah. uses her hilarious miscongeniality. Just remember to sing. Sing. Stomach and step, nose and groin. Yeah. That was a particularly fun moment for me where she like, you know, tries to nail him and then run in the jungle. I didn't there like There is the... something about these 80s romance novels that nothing gets me more jazz than the heroine almost getting away yeah. from the hero. <laughs> totally. so upsetting. And still, I mean, it's still fun to read. It is. Even but... though you know it's going to be disappointed. Yeah. I like, again, not unlike some of the other books that we've read by Johanna Lindsay or Kathleen Woodaweiss, like he does not feel like a hero for a really long time. Like the first hundred pages he's dirty he's smelly he's mean he's scary he has a gun in her ribs and it hurts her like he's also uses the shadow and menace of rape and murder to keep her in line he threatens her with rape yeah even though repeatedly repeatedly and he puts her in physically humiliating positions which i'm sure we'll get to later he never follows through i really want to hear from someone who is a contemporary of this novel when you read this it was a contemporary work of fiction for you like did you understand these characters as heroes from the outset or is part of the pleasure them coming around to being a hero that's a great question I want to know yeah because I when I when we were reading this book I wrote to Morgan really early on I'd only read like 15 pages at that point and I'm like this guy is giving me a real Michael Douglas feeling from romancing the stone because like we're mm-hmm. in Central America there's like a heist element to you can, it you can see the text message Isabeau sent me on our Instagram we are at womance on Instagram and Morgan doesn't answer that just so you know because it immediately foils itself there's no time that Michael Douglas in romancing the stone ever menaces our heroine with rape or murder no and that this book is immediately moves into that direction repeatedly for the first 150 pages mm-hmm. was really weird for me and like if you want we can talk about that scene where he's tied her up with her own undergarments and she's entirely ass naked on that bed yeah because that scene is super weird yeah so they get to this place because they have to pull over for the night he's ostensibly making her drive and she keeps asking where are we going where are we going he's like you just drive it's a downpour and her little Volkswagen bug with a stick shift gets stuck in the mud and then they go up to this farm and gives this farm all of the traveler's checks that she has to put them up for the night and give them a meal and she tries to tell the proprietoress of this farm that she's in trouble but she doesn't speak Spanish Spanish. she says in French yeah she decides that she's gonna try and speak French yeah not helpful it blows my mind I mean this was in the 80s Mm. it blows my mind people who cannot speak basic Spanish in the United States yes I mean not just please and thank you but like ask for directions or give directions like you know really basic stuff in Spanish I always wonder like what were you thinking like no what was your life yeah, I mean, I like, think like that's a really cogent question. And it also and, like, feels like kind of sad. Sure. That you would spend your whole life in the United States without learning a lick of Spanish. Learning a lick of Spanish. Yeah, and I think like that not only <laughs> speaks to Laura, but also speaks to like how Kansas and in the Kansas. Was, how do you 
not speak Spanish in Kansas? In 1986? Like, I don't know the demography of Kansas in 1986, but like, I don't either. That's a good point. This speaks to a kind of discussion about demographics that I think is really interesting in the way that it like works against this book in the way that like Maxwell feels more urbane, even though he's not because he speaks Spanish, because he has friends from all over the spectrum and she doesn't. She has her sister. I mean, like there's like a class element there. There's like an army element. There's like a government element. There's a criminal element. Yeah, He's able to call on a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. All over the board. Yeah. And like the fact that he can like manipulate his network in that way and that his network is so diverse. From like culturally farmers to cocaine kingpin. Exactly. Like Maxwell is comfortable. Veterans. Right. He's able to move through a variety of different spaces. And Laura is not. This is going to be a bit of a tangent. Sure. Let's go. But I think you're going to find this relatable. I think people from areas like Chicago oftentimes assume that people from areas like Kansas and Missouri do not have experience with people from other countries or races or cultures. They assume a very, that we're all Laura's. Sure. I think it's a super provincial worldview that people from like wealthy suburbs in Chicago have Mm. where they actually have a significantly more cloistered amount of experience with the world, but they have this feeling of superiority to people like you and I sure that I think is deeply misplaced I won't deny that I think I think you've especially when it comes to the suburbs of big urban cities I think this would probably be true of like New Haven Connecticut and yes. other places mm-hmm. around and New I York think, I think a lot of writers lean on those assumptions Here's- and create Laura's because a lot of readers understand a shorthand for from a small town in Kansas. Sure. I think romance and genre in general works on a shorthand so we can recognize tropes immediately. Even literature with a capital L does it. Sure. And I think like that's happening here certainly. I think you're right. And I think it happens too much that there's like a provincial attitude because I think especially like places like Kansas and Missouri to a large extent and also Wisconsin Mm -hmm. are more diverse than people would give it credit for especially when we talk about native peoples Mm -hmm. which we like to forget about the indigenous. There is some Something about the way in which village, which I think is a right word to use, interacts itself in those spaces. Like who is in village and who is not. Like I grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin, Shano. Let's talk about it. Never. And it was five minutes from Kashina, which is the Menominee Reservation. And the way in which outsiderness interacted in that space of 6,000 people was really, really, really weird. Mm -hmm. And like who got to be outsider and who wasn't. Like we had an enclave of people who had moved there who were immigrants. They had this lovely restaurant. They had a community center. It was like fun. And like that integration and not assimilation, but integration was welcomed to a point. But as soon as like it grew outside of what the confines of Shauna was comfortable with, Mm -hmm. like a hostility arose in that place that was horrifying. Could you provide an example? Like people would spray paint mean things like racial epithets on people's houses, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Wow. And then there was a cult that lived just outside the borders. A cult? A cult. What were they called? 
called? I don't even In the school of Jehovah's Witnesses. And they had a ton of money because of tithes. And they started buying up land outside of the town. <gasps> Just like wild, wild country. Exactly like that. And then they bought the one of the gas stations. And then they started undercutting all of the gas prices in 2004. And people lost their minds. But they bought the gas, right? They yeah. bought the cheap gas. They, bought they were the, mad at it. They were mad at it that they were better capitalists or like better at like the thing. Because like the institution was supporting itself with ties so they could sell gas at a lower price yeah. than everybody else could. And like those people were run out of town. Yeah. And like when I say that, I mean that literally. Yeah. So my hometown, Garden City, Kansas, a lot of anthropologists study it because it tends to be an outlier. And I do talk about like, well, people make it assumptions about, but I do need to acknowledge that my hometown is an outlier. In far western Kansas, the racial majority is Latinx people. And, you know, I always had friends who were Latinx and things like that. But those power structures based on race never go away. Right. They're always there. I mean, we didn't have the experience of people that I'm aware of, of people spray painting racial epithets on buildings or anything like that. And as prominent as Latinx peoples were in the community, there was still a lot of racism against them. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of racism against Viet and other Asian peoples Mm -hmm. who were in the area. And a lot of, there was maybe a handful of black people. Mm. And so all those problems still exist. My hometown, like, we were recently included in a Modelo ad. Oh, wow. No, you can watch it. <laughs> my neighbor from across the street is in it. Oh and there's God. this, like, they're talking about, like, how it came out shortly after the Trump campaign started espousing its values. And it was considered, like, the anti-that. Like, look, here we are in western Kansas, which should technically be Trump country. And then there's, you know, people talking about how we're all getting along and how we're all able to make it work. And We do take on workers in Garden City, Mm -hmm. Kansas that have been run out of other small towns because, you know, of their different cultures and we're known for our ability to absorb different cultures and things like that. But it never isn't there. Yeah. All of the problems that are in, you know, a small town like yours are also in a small town like mine, even if they're manifesting in more subtle ways. The last time my hometown was in the news was because several people found out that there was a planned terrorist attack by white supremacists on a mosque and the community came together to prevent that from happening. That's awesome. Which is nice. And that's great that that gets, you know, recognized. They still went for Trump in the election. And like, it's still, you know, it's not, it's not like. I think that's one of the things that's really hard too. Like, so like the Shawano, Wisconsin is like one spectrum for me. And I think it's important to talk about the ways in which we provincialize small towns, but also Mm -hmm. big towns. And like, I think this is the thing with flyover states and like, there's the question of being forgotten, but like I spent a lot of time in Columbia, Missouri. And like one of the things that happened while I was there is that they did this act of I'm going to call it racial terrorism. What they did is they put cotton balls all over the Black History Center on campus, just like all over the yard. And then nobody was caught, even though there's surveillance. And like the thing was just like washed under the rug. And then that happened four years prior to maybe what you've heard about were the student protests in 2015 on the Columbia Mizzou campus. And everyone's like, where did this come from? And I'm like, this has been simmering for decades, if not 100 years or more. In some ways, like the provincialization and like this idea of like big city mouse versus small city mouse or country mouse or whatever, like I think those are important ways in which we can like really discuss our 
own critiques and discuss like our own prejudices. And I think you're right, especially like suburban Chicago is often more white than small towns, like especially agrarian small towns when we talk about like agriculture in this country. And I think you're right. There's like this real resting on laurels. It's like, I'm so progressive. We went for Hillary, but it's like how many people of color are in your life? Really? Yeah. And also like provincialism. Right. What does that even mean here? New Yorkers are yeah. the biggest provincials yeah. in the world. They see no need for any other city or town in the world. What happens is, is it perpetuates yeah. people returning to their small towns because they're like, I have no value here because they're told they have no value here. I think that's a really, really good point. And like in some of the ways There's in which- There's a Jezebel article that talks about like how my Southern accent makes me resent. I can see that. And I think that's a really good point to bring up in terms of this book because like- our heroine's journey of self-discovery is already in motion when we meet her. Like Mm -hmm. she's already admitted to herself that she's relieved that her mother's dead. She's gone to Cancun without her fiance. She's done all of these things on her own. And yet Maxwell, Magnum P.I., is still that much more urbane in our eyes. Yeah. I'm like, is it because he was born in Houston? Yeah, is it because he <laughs> has had these life experiences? Yeah, I think it's important that we take this moment on romance mm-hmm. to confront our own prejudices. Sure, I think it's really important. Like, I, when I was reading about Laura, I was like, I kind of think you're a small country mouse and I yeah. have a hard time getting just, to I like you. like you. Yeah. But honestly, Isabeau, the two of us, yeah. we're way more a Laura than we are a Max. That, oh, yeah. Like, oh, my God, yes. Far like, and away. Far and away. Gender thing aside. Right. Fucking upbringing. Do you think maybe we resent Laura because she represents things that we are told about ourselves are bad? I think that might be part of it. I think it's also, like, the way in which she interacts things. It's like, she was so immediately recognizable to me. Yeah. As, like, people in my life that I love yeah. who do things that I don't love. Yeah. That's true. And think things that I don't love. Yeah. And then she also does and thinks those things. Yeah. (laughs) And she does and thinks those things. And then she gets her happily ever after. And I was like, I don't want you. Very sexy Magnum P.I. So sexy. Okay. I'm glad you also thought he was sexy. Oh my God. Oh my. I like against my will. I thought he was sexy. I have always said a mustache is the most trustworthy trait in any man. I think that is so strange and beautiful. Yeah, I'm the only person who feels that way. You're clearly not the only person. He's okay. Because he's got a stash. I'm probably the only person under the age of 30 in 2018 who thinks that way. I love Timothy Dalton. I love Tom Selleck. I, what other famous mustaches do I love? Burt Reynolds had one, but Burt Reynolds mm. is so much of a like... Sexual magnetism. He has a gestalt of yeah. a mustache. I agree. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. There's something about it. I like, I love a mustache, but like, I also grew up in the Greek culture, which is lousy with facial hair. Yeah. Everybody's got something. Yeah, my dad had a mustache. My dad always had interesting facial hair. If he didn't mm. have a mustache, he had something else. Yeah. And so like, the mustache wasn't the thing that was like revving my engine. Certainly wasn't downshifting me. No, I don't think it was revving my engine. I think genuinely it made me trust him. <laughs> genuinely what happened? I mean, it was I written was like, as a very trustworthy mustache. I was like, he's got a, he's got a mustache. Well, let's think about a mustache. A mustache requires you to cultivate something, mm-hmm. but still edit, mm-hmm. which takes like a little extra consideration, a little extra work. That's true. It I does. don't think, I don't know much about men's facial hair, but I don't think there are that many men who can just grow a good mustache. No, very few. Yeah. Like if you can grow a good mustache, you've also got to take care of your sideburns and mm-hmm. your beard and your chin. You also have to look like particularly not like 
terrible. You've got to have some kind of chin yeah. to back it up. Oh, yeah. Have you seen a mustache with a weak chin? Oh, my God. I haven't, but I think it'll be bad. Oh, you'll find some in Logan Square. That's wild to me. I've lived there for a year. I haven't seen a mustache with a weak chin. They might come out this summer. Do you know what I think? Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I was about to say. I bet they've had beards this whole yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> and they're about to trick me. I'm going to be like, hey, you. Yeah. Hey you God. were attractive. I used to think you were okay. And now I know not. Anyway, we should get back to the book at hand. What do you want to talk about? Okay, I want to do sexiest part, weirdest part. Sure, I want to do that too. But first, can we unpack the scene at the farm that we alluded to? Here's what I want to confess. Oh my God, that was your sexiest part? That was my sexiest part. Oh my God. What? I know. Oh my God. And I've labored over it and I've been like... Morgan, set the scene for us. Can I talk about... Okay, I should set the scene. Set the scene And then I want to talk about my personal conflict with this. That's totally fine. Set the scene. They go to the farm. He talks to the co-op farmers and he's like, give us a room, give us some food. Here's all these traveler's checks. He has realized with Laura's multiple escape attempts that she is fearful of rape and she is fearful of murder by her reactions to him. He also has a gun pointed at her ribs all the time. Yeah, and so under his serape. And so he's constantly threatening her with those things. See, I'm already trying to like wish wash. Nope. Uh, so he's he's threatening her with, with rape and murder. We know from his perspective that he doesn't actually have intent of doing those things. We don't have his perspective yet at that point. We do later. We do later. <laughs> we do in chapter 10 but at that point we have not and that's that's one of the ways in which this book is actually remarkable we only get his perspective four times and we don't get it until over halfway through the book yeah which maybe is one of the reasons this is it's entirely in her perspective. Anyways, so she <laughs> tries to speak French to the woman and mm-hmm. try an escape attempt. And he figures it out. And mm-hmm. he's like, okay, you're not going to eat. Mm-hmm. So he picks her up and he pushes her against a wall and he undresses her. And then he ties her to the bed with her undergarments. Her bra is specifically then becomes her gag and her panties become her like anklet. Yeah. So she's entirely naked, which no, she sees. He, she does get a gag. I'm not sure if it's her bra because something else is holding up her wrists. You're right. I'm not sure. Um, Either but, way, but she uses just, her intimate garments as her restraining bolts. The the bummer about having like a physical book is that it's harder for me to flip around. But in the book, he restrains her with her undergarments. I distinctly remember her wrists being together and then mm-hmm. he spreads her legs. Mm-hmm. I became very fearful that this was going to be another Joanna Lindsay situation. Joanna Lindsay has in fact blurbed the cover of this book. I became <laughs> very frightened that that was what was going to happen. He gets up close to her on the bed and says are you scared that I'm gonna rape you he literally says that and then he says I'm not gonna rape you he leaves her tied up for the night he sleeps in the bed next to her because they have the one bed and she starts feeling a yearning to be near him in the moment and then she rationalizes that away as Stockholm syndrome which is going to become a refrain throughout the novel she's telling herself she has Stockholm syndrome but we the reader of the romance genre I realize it's not Stockholm syndrome it talks about how uncomfortable she is the next day but for me sexiest part is when she's tied up naked to the bed and yearning for her captor who is next to her so this happens on page 65 in my version and he's stripped her naked she's tied to the bed and then he like this is the thing that like really struck me is like have you ever been raped 
Yeah, the yeah. Fact that you he, ever been raped? You ever answer me? You ever been raped? The hand tightened on her chin, chest heaving with frightened sobs that could find no outlet past the gag. Eyes huge as they fixed on his harsh face. Laura shook her head. Want to try it? Oh God! Why was he torturing her this way? If he had to do it, why didn't he just go ahead and get it over with? She was gonna die of fright. And then she's like, "No, I've never been raped." She says through her gag, like because she shakes her head. He He's- leaned closer so that his hairy chest once again brushed her breast which is a trope in the romance genre Death. meant to yep, trigger, titillate. titillate. The dark mustachioed face with its unshaven jaw was so close to her she could see the tiny lines radiating from the corner of his eyes. Lines radiating from the corner of the eyes tends to be like a symbol of like mirth. Anyways, next time you pull a stunt like this one tonight, I'll take it for an invitation. His lips curved in a twisted parody of a smile. You're lucky I don't go ahead now. I'd kind of like to make it with you. Make it with you. (laughs) 80s. 80s. I go for broads with big tits. This is not the part that I thought was sexy, but this is the part that primed me for sex. I'm willing to admit that about myself. I think that's fine. Like, and when I said earlier the episode I was tilted against my will this was one of those moments when like they describe the bra and panty set that she'd purchased for herself with the little rosebuds and the nylon I was like oh that's really pretty I'm glad that you have it and then like he uses it to tie her up I'm like this is actually really hot and then he like fucking ruined it by opening his terrible mouth and then this is what he says to her the next day <laughs> you look- I want to read something before the next day okay because I want to I want to point out Karen Robards wants us to be titillated by yes, this yes deeply it doesn't happen I didn't just like find some something that no one else likes no, and then uh, everyone it. is supposed to like this scene. everyone is supposed to like this yeah i'm normal which is, and fine yes you are he shifted again and his hair roughened thigh brushed her <laughs> hip laura gritted her teeth feeling as though hundreds of centipedes with fiery hot feet were swarming all over her body may i remind you of the tentacle porn everyone likes the feeling of a lot of stuff and so even though it's a little grotesque it's still there. <laughs> he was getting to her. She could not forget the way the lamplight had emphasized the muscles that rippled and played beneath tanned satiny skin, the dark hair that formed a wedge on his chest to trail past his navel and then disappear into the snug white briefs, the linebacker shoulders tapering to a narrow waist. Like, linebacker I shoulders. took this the way it was meant to be taken. It was meant to be taken that way. Yeah. All I wanted to say. Here's why. <laughs> well, you're right. He opens his terrible mouth. God, here's why he's terrible so then the next day he says you look like something the cat dragged home on a bad night brush your hair put on some lipstick do whatever it is women do to make themselves look human (sighs) yeah reagan point number seven He's truly terrible and he's terrible for so long. And like he has this other thing where he does this nice thing because she's wanted to see the Mayan ruins. He takes her by some ruins and then she's like, can we stop? And he says, forgotten where you are, baby? You're being kidnapped, remember? Hell no, we can't stop. There is a distinct sneer in his last words, but Laura jerked so rudely back did not hear it. Gazing at the ruins with disappointment as they rounded another bend, the whole town disappeared like a mirage behind a protective curtain of jungle. She realized that she had indeed forgotten her situation. For a moment there, he had been no more or less than any other companion, a friend who could enjoy the magnificence of an ancient city with her. Yeah, he's constantly breaking the hero's promise in the first half of this book. Oh yeah, and it is it is 100% the first half. Like, and it isn't until, like, page 200 that he makes a turn. Yeah, and it is very much so setting up these expectations that he's going to do something nice and then breaking them throughout yeah. the book. I want to go back to whenever I commented that I took this scene the way it was meant to be taken because that has 
as is often the case when I'm in a project of self-preservation, has turned my gaze outward to society. You took it the way the author meant you to take it. I took it the way the author meant me to take it. I don't think we are recognizing enough whenever men have super destructive views of women or women in fact have self-destructive views that we are coming by it honestly. Hey there, Womance listeners. It's Morgan. And Isabeau. And we're here to ask you personally to ask other people personally to listen to Womance. We need your likes, we need your subscribes, and we need your... Listen. Listens. Tune in on whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Do you like SoundCloud? Do you like Apple Podcasts? Do you like Tumblr? Do you like listening to us in the shower? What do you do when you listen to us in the shower? Oh, you know what you do. Gosh. We're so complimented. Also, (laughs) when you're thinking about us and you're rating us five stars and you're liking us, are you telling your friends? Are you telling your mom? Are you telling your brother and your dude bros? Don't forget to tell people about us. Don't just keep us to yourself. Don't just hoard us on your little earbuds, on your Bluetooth speakers. Share us with a friend or loved one so that you can talk about us over cocktails, just like we talk about you over cocktails. We talk about you a lot, listeners. We think you look so pretty right now. You are so amazing. So if you think we're amazing, like we think you're amazing, rate us five stars. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Send us an email and tell us if there's a book that you particularly want to hear here gossiped over a bottle of champagne between two ladies who love each other and love talking about books. Bye. I've been reading From Hell, Mm -hmm. the graphic novel by Alan Moore. Mm -hmm. And there is this whole very long chapter that explains why the murderer would want to kill women. And it has to do with religious traditions and architecture and all sorts of stuff. We're clearly supposed to think he's insane. But what Alan Moore is doing is pointing out that the insanity has allowed him to follow a trail of logic that leads to the destruction of presumptuous women. Mm -hmm. And I think... I am following in this scene that I still think is the sexiest because, you know, that's kind of an instinctual, perhaps more so than logical way to feel. But like, I am following a trail of logic into something really destructive and violent and liking it. That's just such a bummer. (laughs) I think that's one of the things about this book that I found like a continual bummer where it's like, I am deeply titillated. There's a scene not much later on where they're hanging out at Ortega's, the drug runner. Yeah. And she's wearing those super tight jeans and the pink shirt. And she like, he has a hard on while he's cuddling her at night. And she like starts rubbing up against him because her body wants it. And then like he unzips her pants, wakes up from his whatever dream and like gets her off. And that scene is so hot. Hot. Yeah. And it's like, he's a terrible person and says terrible things to her immediately Mm -hmm. as she gets off. But like her hot wash of shame, her humiliation of wanting it and like having never been gotten digitally off before is like this whole discussion about what it means to be like a closeted provincial from Kansas. Yeah. And I think, you know, what she's wearing in that scene Mm -hmm. is indicative to us of like pre-shame because she's given pajamas. They're just too sexy. Right. It's like a peignoir. Yeah, and she doesn't want to wear something that sexy to bed, and so instead she wears 
just sexy day clothes. Which is the only other thing that she's been given. She has this whole thing where it's like jeans are harder to rip off so he wouldn't be able to rape me easily. But I, but I almost feel like Karen Robard's reason for putting her in those clothes is to prove a point about the sexuality of even jeans. Your day clothes. Yeah, and how our heroine is even sexy in her pants and sure. t-shirt. Like she cannot save herself from her sexual desire. And like when I put it that way, I'm like, oh, that's good. But it's not. It's like she should be able to not invite that kind of attention. She should be able to check out if she's uncomfortable. I think the thing that this book doesn't do a good enough job of is discussing where and when Laura's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And like we get her, mm-hmm. like she's constantly uncomfortable. She's like, in, like this entire book is her of being in a state of discomfort. But part of that is like an awakening that she's invited. And part mm-hmm. of it is she's just been kidnapped by this terrible dude that we later understand isn't a bad dude. But honestly, her kidnapping is also presented to us Very as, sexually. No, as a, as a awakening that she's invited. Yes. Like she chose to go off on her own. She didn't lock her doors. Yeah. Whenever he is taking off her clothes, she feels the book says shame, but it describes it as a titillating experience to feel shame. Like it's, it's shame as we understand it in name alone. I want to talk about this in context of Joanna Lindsay. So Joanna Lindsay really does blurb the cover of my book. It says, Karen is one of those writers I buy without needing to read a review. Joanna Lindsay. We read a Joanna Lindsay. Mm-hmm. It was also meant to be titillating. Mm-hmm. Neither of us were titillated. Mm-mm. And yet both of us are titillated by a lot of the same shit happening in this book. I think I it's mean, because it's actually never rape. The follow-through doesn't happen. Okay, it's the difference of the follow-through. It's like literally never rape. And then he has this whole discussion in one of the four times that we have his perspective, which again makes this book exceptional, that we're so rooted deeply in Laura's perspective, which I begin to like actually not like because I don't love her perspective and I really wanted to hear his thing because I got the sense that we're supposed to understand him as like I'm not gonna hurt women I just want her to think I am yeah and like I wanted to hear his rationalization for that but like yeah we didn't really get that but he has this thing where it's like I only want my women hungry for mm-hmm. me super hungry super hungry like you have and to beg for then it he talks about how he likes swarthy ladies because they have a greater tendency towards that fiery spirit but you know who came before the swarthy ladies Mary Beth from Missouri. Yeah. His wife. Yeah. Who he woke up every night with his PTSD nightmares from Vietnam. And then she left him. Because he pushed her away and said terrible things because he was so embarrassed about crying in front of her. Mm-hmm. And like Mary Beth was too good. Mary Beth was white. Mm-hmm. Mary Beth was kind. Yeah. Mary Beth was definitely an iteration of Laura. I don't think men are realizing, and I don't think Karen Robards is realizing either when men are being racist with their sexual pride. Preferences. This one. He's very much racist with his sexual preferences. Yes. He was having sex with all of these swarthy women in charge of themselves, but yeah. he wasn't going to marry them. No, certainly not. And he was making assumptions about their personalities based on their looks. Yes. That probably weren't true. They probably also didn't like him waking them up with his PTSD. Sure. Who and would? Like, and like, I don't know. It's just dudes with, or women for that matter, who fetishize. White savior syndrome? Yeah. It's always white savior syndrome. If you have a racial preference and you're a white person, as far as like sexuality goes, like you'd rather bone down on someone who has a particular race, it's white savior syndrome. Like look yourself in the mirror and I would love to watch you not effectively rationalize that away. Sure. 
And I think like that's one of those moments like watching his rationalization through that discussion where it's like I've had a number of sexual partners all over Central and South America. I'm not racist. I have sex with all of these women of color. Uh-huh. Um, but selectively, the only- selectively because they are fiery and can handle my fiery spirit. And they're curvaceous. And they're yeah, whatever that means. Oy, oy, oy. Right. And so like then his maneuver around making her hungry for him was like a sort of like. Madonna Magdalene trope like where you had to inhabit both at once yeah which I think it was weird to get from his perspective because that was also like the feeling that we were getting from Laura where she's like I am Madonna how do I inhabit Magdalene at the same time yeah to make him want me right which is where she lands I'll have sex with him until his body yearns for me because then his heart will yearn for me yeah and it works out it does because it's a happy ever after (sighs) What was your sexiest part? The moment where he's getting her off in her jeans. I also definitely liked their first PNV scene in the cave. Well, it's not in a cave. It's by a pond That's and it's right. in a meadow. Right, of it orchids. Is the most romance novel of yeah. romance novel sex scenes. They get in a fight and yeah. then he. She uh, calls him a crybaby, listeners. She calls him a crybaby and he becomes so enraged by being called a crybaby. That he has to kiss her. That he gets his dick hard. He kisses her so hard that he actually splits her lip. This happens several times. That he kisses her yeah. so hard he splits her lip. Her lips are either very sensitive or he's a bad person. I bet they're chapped because of their adventure. That's true. She's like drinking a lot. But like, yeah, like, and the, the whole scene where he's like taking her clothes off and then she takes her own clothes off, which is super sexy. And then like he goes down on her while she's standing and he's kneeling in a bed of orchids. She decides, yeah, before this, she asks him to take her to a pond where he normally fishes so that she can wash herself. And then she decides she's, once again, not going to take off her jeans and t-shirt while she bathes. Kansas. Because she doesn't want, yeah, she doesn't want to titillate him. So she's just going to get all wet in her clothes. It's so dumb. I think he would have been less turned on if she had taken off her clothes. Yeah, I agree. And then she calls him a crybaby. And then he ravishes her. Mm-hmm. And then he takes her to a meadow. Mm-hmm. It is. It's the most romance novel of the romance novel sex scenes I've ever read. I like that she described the perfume as being intoxicating of the orchids where it's like orchids don't particularly smell mm-hmm. so like that's weird but like the loam of like the meadow itself smells mm-hmm. and she's intoxicated by the smell of the skin like she is drunk on yeah. sensation yeah and like in that way that scene was like crazy hot and I also believe Karen Robards unlike Kathleen Woodowice has had an orgasm in her life <laughs> Nothing makes me more sad than reflecting on those orgasm descriptions. <laughs> well, nothing's ever going to be like the holocaust of emotions that Kathleen Woodaways gave us. Golly. So what was your weirdest part? Oh my gosh, we've talked about so many. I think in general, the very Reagan era perception of Latin America. Like in one of the final chapters, it says, It was nearly midnight, which in a Latin country like Guatemala is the top of the evening. Like a colonialist travel guide Mm -hmm. description of the place and the people outside of our Western figures and is always weird. I thought it was weird how she discovers that there's a world of sexuality outside of her relationship with her fiance via the overheard conversations of her students. That was weird. That was weird. 
her relationship with her sister, which seems so salient. I guess she's supposed to move on from that throughout the course of the novel is weird. But overall, there's this vibe that permeates the book that is so colonialist and about Central America, which is very fitting for the era it was written in and the country it was written in. I agree. My weirdest part is like tangentially related to that in that like I found the discovery of Maxwell's combat tours in Vietnam and then the massacre of a village really, really weird. It was disturbing. Tuna Fish is describing his best friend making eye contact with children before he shoots them. And they're all hopped up on speed and they're all hopped up on dope, which is also part of the discussion about like why he's against running cocaine in Nicaragua in 1986. Yeah. like whatever nothing prior to that moment of us learning that he was the lieutenant in charge of that platoon he didn't need to be a combat veteran who committed war crimes he was already a lot of things yeah yeah he didn't need that and then it is after that scene (laughs) that we get the meadow love making yeah also like the scene of that memory the the inciting when like he gets to the part where he's like the guy has PTSD and his wife left him let's just say like this romance novel did not deal with PTSD with any sort of death It did not deal with the Vietnam War with any sort of deafness or combat veterans with any sort of deafness. Like the idea that like the inciting incident of this terrible war crime is that a baby had a grenade in his diaper and blew up three of his men, which initiated a chain reaction of violence was so strange and like jarring for a romance novel. And like, it was like heinously exceptional. I've never read anything like that in a romance in my whole life. Yeah, it was- It was like the things they carried, frankly. Heinously exceptional is a great way to put it. And I, I think there's also something about how we're supposed to feel sympathy for him after that. Like we're supposed to forgive all of the rape threats and shit like that because we now know that he murdered children and old people. Like, and old people were supposed to be like, oh, it's fine. But you know what? 1986, it was a different time. Because he repressed it and got over it and took care of the people that he loved. Yeah, and then... Like uh, Tuna Fish. Like Tuna Fish, who got his name because his last name is Casserole. Tuna Fish, a T-F- black person referred to as terrible things, also never finished high school and was immediately drafted. Yeah. You know who wasn't drafted? Maxwell. Max, he joined up. He joined up. He made his choices. This is a novel of its era in a way that is like, there's so much to unpack. Womance or nomance, Isabeau? I was titillated, so like, womance, but also like, I would not recommend this book to people. No, it's going to be a nomance for me. I don't think titillation should be our bar. Sure, okay. <laughs> like, I was titillated against my will. Nomance. I never want to read this again. I've been titillated by warm laundry. I would... <laughs> I do love my warm sheets. (laughs) That should not be our bar. Uh, No man's. Decided no man's. I'd read another Karen Robards, maybe, depending. But this one, uh, go watch Romancing the Stone. Romantic Times described Karen Robards as the mistress of sizzling sensuality. I mean, we liked it better than the Johanna Lindsay, so maybe? Yeah, I guess so. No, it's a no man's. It's a no man's. It's a decided romance. There's so much better. There's so much great stuff out there. Uh, If you're like me and you're reading, part of the reason you're reading the genre is for the pleasure of the discovery of weird shit. Maybe it's a womance. It's a nomance. It's a nomance. Read read Shanna instead. Yeah, Shannon is much better. Yeah, read Shanna instead. If you're here for the weird shit, read Shanna instead. Yeah. All right. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Mwah!
folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman, and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.